Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Upon his return to Tennessee in 1798, he received almost a hero's welcome and was subsequently elected to the state senate and finally to the speakership, the state's second highest office. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Andrew Zellers Frederick talking about impeachment, 18th century style. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by West Home Publishing, publishers of To the End of the World, Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and The Race to the Dan by Andrew Waters, available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, our guest is a return guest, Andrew Zellers Frederick, this time writing about an 18th century impeachment that of Senator William Blunt. We've heard a lot about impeachment in the news over the last year or so, so we're not going to get into that. We've heard enough of it. But I think what Andrew Zellers Frederick presents us today is kind of a more broad understanding of the intentions of impeachment, the the design of impeachment, uh, and just how and when it was supposed to be used. Yes, the circumstances are different between a 21st century impeachment uh, and an 18th century impeachment. Uh, But Andrew Zellers Frederick shows us through the impeachment of William Blunt how impeachment was perceived, how it was viewed as partisan, what the political realities were, and what the aftermath was. I think what I can say is, and you'll hear this in the interview and certainly when you read his article, I think what, what I can say is, you will be a little bit surprised about how little we've changed over the last 250 years. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Andrew Zellers Frederick. Andrew Zellers Frederick, welcome back. It's a pleasure to be here again. Tell us about your background. Well, I'm a trained historian, researcher, historic site administrator, and author for approximately 35 years. Um, I started my career with the National Park Service, stationed at several sites, including Philadelphia's Independence National Historical Park and Yorktown Battlefield. Coincidentally, um, I provided historic interpretive programs in a building which are directly connected with tonight's topic and our subject, William Blunt. Uh, It was Philadelphia's newly constructed 1787 Congress Hall, the precursor to Washington's Capitol building, where Senator Blunt of Tennessee was charged by the House of Representatives with high crimes and misdemeanors and then tried literally upstairs in the Senate. And I've been director of many historic sites and served on many boards, um, both volunteer and governmental. Uh, I'm an author, published in magazines, newspapers, journals, online and websites, to name a few. 
I hold a Bachelor of Arts degree with honors in history from Temple University, a Master of Arts in history with honors from LaSalle University, and a certificate in historic preservation from Bucks County Community College. Right now, because of COVID and the permanent closure of my last employer, the David Library of the American Revolution, I'm seeking new challenges in the Philadelphia region, especially in Chester County with connections to the 1777 Battle of Brandywine. So I'm looking right now. What first drew your interest into this topic? Okay, well, um, tonight's topic of the first impeachment in American history began as a major research paper during graduate school at LaSalle, and it was a class specifically on the United States Constitution. We read it from the beginning to the end and studied it. Uh, With two presidential impeachment trials held for high crimes and misdemeanors over the last year, um, I revised my original paper and edited it for the online journal, The American Revolution. Uh, I thought it would be interesting to a lot of people. Um, With the historical references of the 18th century trial, having many similarities to this past month's congressional one. We've heard a lot about impeachment in the news lately. Let's talk a little bit about impeachment itself. What was its intended purpose? Okay, well, remember, the framers originally were all British subjects. So what they knew of the law, they knew from Great Britain. Uh, But the impeachment provision of our Constitution um, was a little different from the English practice. In Britain, impeachment had a far broader scope. While it was a legal device to remove people from office for an individual who had abused his office or misbehaved um, but was not protected by the crown, it could also be used against anyone, office holders or not, and was punishing in nature with possible fines, imprisonment, or even the ultimate penalty, death. By contrast, the American impeachment process is corrective, not punishable. It is um, limited to office holders, and judgments are limited to no more than removal from office and the disqualification to hold future governmental offices. Basically, the 1787 Constitutional Convention carefully selected its words, describing that individuals could be removed on impeachment and conviction of malpractice or negligence of duty, um, also translating into bribery, treason, and high crimes and misdemeanors. Therefore, the Constitution gave the Congress the authority to impeach the president, vice president, and all federal civil officers. This authority serves as an important check and balance on the executive and judicial branches, but in Blunt's case, it was one of their own. And curiously, it's the only time it's been used against someone in the Congress. Uh, The Congress has used this power 21 times, resulting in seven convictions entirely of federal judges. And the last time impeachment was successfully employed was fairly recent, as in 2010 for United States East Louisiana District Judge G. Thomas Porteous, Jr. for accepting brides and perjury. For those of us that aren't familiar with William Blunt, tell us a bit about his background. Okay. Well, William Blunt was a third generation of his family in America, 
and the eldest of eight siblings. He was born in 1749 on his influential family's Rosenfield Plantation uh, in North Carolina. The family's vast interests consisted of cotton, tobacco, and general farming, all conducted, of course, with slave labor, the raising of cattle and hogs, the production of maritime tar, pitch, and turpentine, the mining of minerals, metals, and other ores, the milling of grains, lumber sawmills, and other distilleries. And clearly, the Blunt family had their hands or fingers in a lot of pieces of pie throughout North Carolina. From his earliest boyhood, it was obvious that William Blunt and his siblings were accustomed to the unchecked and unregulated flexibility of enterprise. As like many rural Southern families at the time, the Blunts were linked economically, commercially, and socially with their relatives, and they seemed to act in concert with putting the family's interests first above everything else. William Blunt's so-called public service began in 1777 with a three-year term as a paymaster for the North Carolina militia. In 1780, as the revolution turned savage in the South, he began a four-year term to the state's House of Commons and later to its Senate in 1786. While serving in these public offices, Blunt primarily concerned his attention to matters of personal interests, such as business, militia, militia matters, and his family's vast holdings, which provided statewide authority during a time of uncontrollable inflation for most of South Carolina. In 1786, Blunt was appointed as a delegate to the Weak Confederation Congress, meeting in New York City, and later to serve as a member of the 1787 Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. James Madison, who took detailed notes and most insightful observations during the convention, declared that Blunt, quote, declared that he would not sign or to pledge himself in support of the plan, but he would, without committing himself, attest to the fact that the plan was the unanimous act of the states of the convention. Blunt's short, evasive remarks speak volumes as he fully demonstrated uh, his lifelong practice of playing both sides for his personal benefit. It's ironic that the document that he ultimately signed on September um, 19th, making the Constitution the law of the land, will come back to haunt him 10 years later. If you could uh, talk a little bit about the territory south of the River Ohio, what made his fate so uncertain for the United States? Well, you've got to remember, the United States, under the federal constitution, is fairly brand new and feeling its way. Um, on May the 26th, 1790, the area between Kentucky and the present states of Alabama and Mississippi, formerly claimed by North Carolina, was congressionally designated the territory of the United States south of the River Ohio. The Northwest Land Ordinance mandated that before statehood, a territory must be governed by five presidentially selected federal officials, a governor, a secretary, and three judges. Blunt, as the original wheeling and dealing land speculating, sharp-nosed manipulator, politician, and financier, knew how to attain what he wanted, usually employing the shortest route. 
with very few obstacles, Blunt seemingly grabbed the governorship, along with the title of Superintendent of Indian Affairs for the Southern Department, almost easily from President Washington um, the following June 8th by convincing a number of his influential business associates to intercede with the chief executive on his behalf. Once his commission was confirmed, Blunt fully utilized his newly granted a point of authority to assist him with building a network of personal obligation and influence through the territory with governmental offices, including justices, sheriffs, constables, clerks, registrars, and every militia officer below the rank of general. It's reported that he boasted that, quote, no lawyer could plead in the Southwest Territory without a license from him, unquote. And this position evidently pleased his family and its vital land investments. Uh, Blunt's various political appointments granted him the absolute control of his domain. He was a shrewd politician who knew all the clever little devices retaining the loyalty and support of his appointees. And he knew practically how to play upon the vanities of his superiors in the capital of Philadelphia. It wasn't coincidental that the new territorial capital was named Knoxville, after Secretary of War Henry Knox, who happened to be Blunt's superior in Indian affairs, whose military support was required as relations with the American tribes were always precarious. Both the Secretaries of the Treasury and State were not left out of this political flattery, as there was both a Hamilton and a Jefferson County, those thus also covering the leaders of both developing national political parties, playing both sides of the fence. He couldn't do President Washington because there already wasn't one. But Blunt developed and evolved his type of national political style that would frequently benefit him as necessarily required in the territory south of the River Ohio. Now, President Washington was no fool when it came to the intrigues of the Blunt family and the Western territories in general. The chief executive correctly analyzed the political situation in the region as delicate, and he was anxious to um, consolidate the frontier leaders so no new separatist movement would develop to split territories from the control of the federal government. This sort of thing had happened or tried to happen up in Vermont and the revolts in Massachusetts. Could we talk about Blunt's conspiracy? Well, you know, as I said when we started, um, there's so much similarities to other impeachments and things. Um, I couldn't be making this up. Uh, the Blunt conspiracy itself boiled down to one of the many such adventuring-type actions that occurred within the Southwest Territory, with a nickname ladder, re, laterally reserved for similar-type affairs in 19th and 20th century Central America. Originally with, with John Chisholm, a former American loyalist who served as a British soldier, uh, the nebulous plot centered on seizing the remains of Spain's decaying Southwest American Empire with the support of the British government. So the British had never given up on reclaiming America. That's why you know the, the War of 1812 is called the second half of the revolution. 
Now, this requested support was in the form of naval warships and military supplies. The project would be aided by blunt, sympathetic Native American allies, which he controlled through his offices. The reward for Great Britain's actions would be transferring the seized land titles to the British crown. In late 1796, Chisholm, a confidant of Blunt, who detested the Spanish because of his wartime imprisonment in Pensacola, approached the British minister, Robert Liston, in Philadelphia with his grand plan, primarily an assault on Spanish West Florida. Although Liston did not consent to endorse this ill-counseled venture, the British minister did little or nothing to dissuade the hot-headed Chisholm. By the time Blunt entered the fray, add-on project using the support of the um, Native American tribes, Liston had already informed his London supporters that over 1,500 whites, principally British subjects attached to their country and their sovereign, were ready to enter into a plan for the recovery of the Floridas to Great Britain. In return for the vitally required military support, of warships, supplies, and commissions. Blunt sounded out his original cohorts with this grand plan, but on a much larger scale than first proposed by Chisholm. Basically, there would be a three-pronged offensive on Spain's Southwest Empire. The first threat would be utilized men collected on the frontiers of New York and Pennsylvania with instructions to attack New Madrid, located in present-day Missouri and leave a garrison there, and proceed to the head of the Red River and take position, a position um, which would enable them to take the silver mines of Spain. That would be the second attack. Uh, that would be commanded personally by Blunt. And then uh, he would use uh, men from Tennessee and Kentucky, along with uh, those of the Natchez and Choctaw Native American tribes, to seize New Orleans, and last, under Chisholm, consisting of the Cherokee and the Creeks tribes, with the white men of Florida, take Pensacola. In return for its support, Britain was offered the seized territory in New Orleans, and it would be declared a free port open for unrestricted use and access by interests such as, you guessed it, those of Blunt, his family, and his confederates. Like all great secret plans, this one will be revealed. It will be busted in a way. Uh, how was it revealed? Sure. Um, it's ironic that Blunt himself provided the crucial piece of incriminating evidence that provided the explanation that there was truth to the conspiratorial rumors that spread through the territory and back to the eastern United States. Recently elected now, President John Adams and the members of his administration also heard these names and things that were going on. To verify information, a presidential summons was issued, which ultimately deprived Blunt of his ability to meet personally with his frontier supporters. But he made the ill-fated choice of committing his thoughts and instructions on his plans to paper with dire consequences for himself, sort of the Watergate tapes. On the 21st of April, 1797, he wrote a detailed letter to a longtime friend 
an Indian interpreter, James Carey of Tennessee. Blunt confessed in his letter, among other things I wish to see you about, with the business Captain Chisholm mentioned to the British minister last winter in Philadelphia. He felt that the plan then talked of will be attempted in the fall. And if it is attempted, it will be much larger way than we first talked of. And if the Indians act their part, I have no doubt, but it will succeed. Blunt convinced himself and provided his future prosecutors with the confession they required for high crimes and misdemeanors with his own ill-conceived words. A man of consequence has gone to England about the business, and it makes the arrangements as he expects. I shall have a hand in the business and probably shall be the head of the business on the part of the British. He admitted to Carey that it was not yet certain that the plan will be attempted, yet you will do well to keep things in a proper train of action in case it should be attempted. And you, these are brown, uh, Blunt's words, by the way. And to do so will require all of your management. Carey ultimately did not heed Blunt's caution, warning that he, quote, not that he must take care in whatever he says to other uh, people in the interests of the United States of, or Spain. It is evident that Blunt realized the seriousness of this incriminating letter but felt that Carey could be completely trusted in both loyalty and judgment. He advised Carey to, quote, take care of yourself. I have now to tell you to take care of me too, for a discovery of the plan would prevent the success and much injure all the parties concerned, unquote. Blunt, always the schemer, believed that he had a fallback plan if the enterprise failed. He always had plans B, C, and D, you know, behind his main one. Uh, he felt the matter could be linked to, quote, the instructions of the president, unquote, meaning Washington. He felt that culpability, especially in regard to the use and the relations with the Native Americans, could be taken off of him and heaped upon, quote, the late president, not the dead president, Washington's still alive, and as he is now out of office, he will be of no consequence how much the Indians blame him, unquote, for all these actions. This one letter undoubtedly and completely tied Blunt himself to Chisholm's plan, as well as committing national political suicide by directing slanderous remarks against the country's beloved George Washington, Blunt's former patron and host. The various slanders were simple blunders. However, the involvement with Chisholm's scheme and Blunt's personal link with the affairs of Great Britain was politically disastrous for all concerned. How did impeachment become the solution for this problem? And how did the government officials you talk about in your article feel about this? You have some really great quotes. Well, first of all, um, most of the quotes I'm going to ask uh, to read the published or the you know online article 
in the Journal of the American Revolution. It's much more detailed than we have the time for. But I'll, I'll go through some of them. And now, remember, the Constitution was only approved in 1787. So this is a little more than a decade later. But as all this news spread, and President Adams has a reputation of upholding the law and believing in justice, you see that time and time again. So the wheels of justice began to turn quickly throughout the remainder of June 1797 as the president queried Attorney General Charles Lee for his official view on the blunt matter as the facts quickly began to solidify and take form. Lee, in turn, requested assistance from the United States attorney in Philadelphia, William Rawl, and a prominent Federalist, William Lewis. On the 22nd of June, they unanimously agreed that Blunt's infamous letter was evidence of crime, specifically a, quote, misdemeanor, and that Blunt was subject to impeachment for his offensive actions. The sword hung over the unaware Blunt. He doesn't know what's going on yet for nearly two weeks until the letter was presented to the president of the Senate, who is Vice President Thomas Jefferson. On July the 3rd, um, the letter was initially read before the Senate, when Blunt was absent. As the Senate chamber predictably exploded in an uproar, Blunt entered and was treated to another reading of his document with President Jefferson as an anti-Federalist. Blunt had switched loyalties to this party after the Federalists did not serve his purposes anymore. Um, seemingly uncomfortably pressing the matter if the senator was indeed the letter's author. Blunt admitted to writing a letter on or about that date to James Carey, but he stalled the proceedings by stating he was unable to ascertain if the Senate's document was a correct copy or not, and he requested a day and a copy of the Senate's version to check his personal files. With his request granted, Blunt had some breathing space and departed the Senate's chamber. Simultaneously downstairs in Philadelphia's Congress Hall, the House of Representatives had also cleared its galleries as the materials forwarded from the president were, were given. Unlike the Senate, the lower house did not vote a delay in the proceedings and immediately formed a committee to investigate the entire matter using all the provided evidence. Although at the outset of the affair was kept confidential, the patience of the Senate soon expired as Blunt continued to play for time and then they formed their own committee to examine the affair. When Blunt was requested by Vice President Jefferson to appear before the Senate, it was discovered that he had fled Philadelphia. Now, for the next 18 months, Blunt and his actions consumed the Congress. Blunt had quickly reconsidered his actions within a day or so and returned to Philadelphia to personally witness the first practical congressional discuss discussions of impeachment. The primary issues for Blunt settled on whether civil officers were subject to impeachment, and if so, whether a senator was a civil officer. The dominant Federalists maintained uh, and took Hamilton's viewpoint that, 
quote, all were granted except that were so denied, unquote. Why the Republicans contended that all to, quote, be prohibited, which was not expressly granted, unquote. Whether Blunt's reckless actions in the Southwest were private or public, and if they were in any form related to duties in his capacity as a federal senator, required debate and scrutiny. Blunt's attitude and his brief flight from justice clearly won the majority of condemnation from both sides of the aisle, and the principal question centered on one, how to deal with him, two, why an investigation was in order, three, who should conduct it, and four, when should it take place. By the end of July 6, Blunt's position was quickly failing in any attempt to delay the inevitable impeachment process. During the investigative process, even with Blunt's going on the offensive with the hiring of two Philadelphia lawyers, Jared Ingersoll and Alexander Dallas, the Senate had enough and decided with 25 to 1 vote that Blunt was unworthy to hold his seat. Blunt's situation continued to proceed from bad to worse, as he now had been impeached, expelled, and continued to face the prospect of a, of a complete um, indictment. What ultimately happens to Blunt? Well, Blunt's actions of flouting the authority of the national government uh, consisted of fleeing to Tennessee and refusing to return to Philadelphia. And it sort of was an act of throwing down the gauntlet and challenging the right of the Congress to try him for his actions. By this step, he further managed to demonstrate the vulnerability among um, the national government and to cause it embarrassment among its own people and the European powers that were following this very closely. The Senate's sergeant-at-arms was sent to Tennessee, and he reported back that he couldn't get anyone in Knoxville to assist him in arresting Blunt, and so he returned empty-handed to the Capitol. It is ironic that Blunt, triumphantly, in the eyes of his Southwestern supporters, managed to continually insult the honor and the dignity of the United States, whose governance he thought sought to establish and promote in Tennessee. The exposure of Blunt's illegal plans did nothing to lessen his lust for more land or power. It was his deep motives of, quote, prestige, wealth, and family, which despite public exposure, personal ill health, and near bankruptcy, unquote, provided him with the challenge and the um, optimism to continue on. Upon his return to Tennessee, um, in 1798, he received almost a hero's welcome and was subsequently elected to the state Senate and finally to the speakership, the state's second highest office. Now, Blunt may have achieved further political preferment with his home state, but this affected his family's vast fortunes, which now became substantially reduced because of all this embarrassment. He died on the 21st of March, 1800, at the age of 50, reportedly of chills and a stroke. How does this story help us understand the Revolutionary Era better? 
This is pretty simple. The episode of William Blunt successfully proved, for the most part, that the new barely 10-year-old federal constitution could successfully function in a civilized manner under Article 2, Section 4, and that a new nation could be effectively governed by laws even when threatened by potentially damaging crimes. So in effect, the government followed its own constitution peacefully, and though Blunt virtually escaped justice, the constitution did function. Andrew Zellers Frederick, thank you for joining us. It has been my pleasure, and I hope to talk to you again in the future. The music played in this episode include works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.